everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm your host, Tal Fortgang. I'm a researcher here at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'm a possible member of the bourgeoisie. But there are worse things, right, Christina? Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's, that's right. Uh, today I'm joined by the factual feminist herself, AEI resident scholar and co-host of the Femsplainers podcast, Christina Hoff Summers. Christina, I already put you on the spot, but I'll backtrack a little bit and thank you for joining us. Uh, and especially for bringing this bar cart full of femsplainer cocktails into the studio. What? I have La Croix, but it's passion fruit, so it's a little risque. And we haven't spiked anything. Uh, So I've listened to your podcast, and I've read your work, and it seems as though a lot of what the intellectual bourgeoisie seems to do is enjoy nice drinks, talk about philosophy, politics, current events, uh, and other lofty ideas. Uh, is this the the very definition of elitism? Because we're going to be talking about elitism a lot today. Uh, is that is that how you see elitism? Is that what you... Oh, there's of? so many so many ways to define elitism, but I do I do think that the elites tend to be today, we have a kind of merit uh, meritocracy uh, with based on education. And we draw people from all social classes, but it's very good at finding the talent and bringing it into uh, the elite schools. And uh, it's, it's, education is a key part of it. Money is important too, but education is, if you have, you can have money and not be elite. So that's one of the, the key insights of the lecture that we're going to be talking about today, which is David Brooks uh, on how the new elite is changing American culture. He gave the Bradley lecture in May of 2000. And one of his, uh, Insights that he makes rather quickly, but uh, very importantly, is that in the United States, we don't have inherited nobility, um, but education and wealth can confer uh, a sense of elitism, both uh, perceived by the individual, him or herself, and by society more broadly. Uh, in particular, there was a resurgence in this kind of elitism in the 1990s that he's that he's pointing to. So can you set the stage for this this lecture Talk about where we were in history in the late 90s and early aughts. We were at the end of history. It was a time of great optimism. It looked as though liberal democracy was going to find its way into, you know, all parts of the world. And um, the culture wars had sort of calmed down a little bit. In fact, it even looked like the politics was relatively moderate. I mean, you had... Bill Clinton from the you know Democratic Leadership Council it was a a centrist Democratic group is very strong then, and um, you know if you listen to David Brooks' lecture and he's talking about Bobos in Paradise Bobos meeting the bourgeois Bohemians, they he describes a phenomenon where you had this counterculture of the '60s and you know sex, drugs, rock and roll, and hippies and so forth. And yet some of these people began to get rich. And increasingly the economy was rewarding people uh, for ideas. And you could become, you know, you could be uh, suddenly having an organic food store and then it could become a chain and you could become... And so these people that had seen themselves as outside the culture fighting the bourgeoisie, they merged with it. And his book is is optimistic about it. He's not worried at this time because he thinks that both neither side won the, the sort of culture war that was a um, kind of armistice, and both became a little more like the other. So the the Bohemians came in and changed the bourgeoisie, and the bourgeoisie changed the Bohemians. So a lot has obviously changed since then. Well, yes, because if you <laughs> I, I, going back and listening to his lecture. Uh, and I, I also been reading interviews with him at the time, and he would uh, be asked, well, you have these elites now who are, and it's also very funny the way he describes them, because unlike elites of the past, you know, where, you know, they came from, you know, the, the Northeast and some, you know, f- families and important wealthy families, and this was a, a new elite that was coming up so you could come out of nowhere and end up at Harvard or Yale or Princeton or one of the uh, Ivy League schools. And 
then you find your way to the top of, uh, you know, finance and law and journalism and so forth. And what he said is this new elites, they, they, it wasn't as if they inherited it. They deserved it. They were the best. And what was I talking about? <laughs> uh, well, we were going to talk about how things have changed since then oh, yeah. and, and how politics in particular that I think pretty clearly emerge from some of these cultures and subcultures and countercultures. Oh, yeah. That's what I was saying. They've, they've gotten a lot less moderate. Well, the moderation is gone. That pretense is okay, gone. Okay, so it's and, a bit of an under understatement there. Yeah. And the this whole idea that we're, you know, we're not going to, you know... Oh, so one of the things that David proposed in the lecture was that he didn't think there was going to be an uprising. Uh, people didn't resent the the new elite. In fact, uh, as Thornstein Babelin had uh, predicted, they wanted to emulate them. And so you would find... Um, he just expected that as this new class was coming of age um, and their tastes were towards, you know, better foods and wines. And he, he re- referred to latte towns because that was sort of new. I mean, we, you, you, this generation, take it for granted that everybody's drinking cappuccino and uh, Starbucks are ubiquitous. It's trendy to drink straight black coffee. Now, <laughs> now like... Much probably cooler. Probably hipsters go to Dunkin' Donuts, and that's how you rebel. But it's no irony <laughs> squared back upon itself. Irony, yes. <laughs> but but then he thought that there wasn't going to be rebellion. There'd be uh, emulation, imitation, as always, and um, and that he didn't think they were resented that much. And it, 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 it's a very cheerful book. He's a cheerful person. He's optimistic. I don't think, though, he would say that now because clearly there was a problem. Because as these, um, this new class came to power, it was antagonistic towards other, the, the its uh, the so-called underclass, in the sense that it um, just ignored and denigrated a lot of um, institutions that were c- critical to the well-being of people uh, the less privileged than they. They, for example, there was a, a denigration of the family. However, you will find the Bobos, the the bohemian bourgeois elites, they have to this day, I mean, intact families. Divorce is relatively rare. They, as our colleague Charles Murray has pointed out this out, that if you look at the elites today, and even at the time David was writing, they look like 1950s families. But they, they didn't preach what they practiced. And so we saw this was going on. The family was getting weaker. More and more people were living in sort of chaotic situations, and then critical institutions. There was the church, um, religious organizations, uh, as well as labor unions, weakened. These were these sustained the middle class and the lower middle class, and they, uh, the, the meritocratic class, um, um, and both left and right, centrist, because we're talking about a centrist time, just didn't pay attention or or actively contributed to the weakening of these institutions. It's interesting that you should bring that up because the term bourgeois, which makes up half of the bobos who were in their paradise, which has now seemingly been lost, uh, bourgeois is so typically associated with a traditional family, first and foremost, uh, and the certain, the virtues that come with uh, an American Protestant ethic generally. So what you seem to be saying is that there was a synthesis of the bohemian ethic and the bourgeois ethic. Right. But in certain areas, the bohemian impulse won. The, it won. It won. It, not so, as again, not so much in how they lived. Because as, as David Brooks says somewhere in the lecture, it's as if they took, you know, they looked at the sort of hippie revolution and took what they, a few things. They, they left out the free love part and the, you know. But they brought for themselves, you know, the sort of things that appeal to middle-aged people, like whole grains and and leafy salads and so forth. So they themselves continue to be quite bourgeois. I mean, who has more of a work ethic than these Ivy League, you know, educated kids? And then they go on to, to law firms. I mean, they're working very hard. And more than that, he points out, then suddenly they become obsessed with uh, physical fitness. So there's jogging and there's... Going to the gym and vacations, you could go on 
you can pay $20,000 take your family on a vacation where everybody everybody's miserable the whole time because you have to climb and and kayak and I mean it's fun but <laughs> actually I've had vacations like that but um this was new this was new that you would take a vacation not to not to a resort you know just just sip martinis by the pool but hard working very everything was industrious so they themselves were very bourgeois they would rebel in ways that were sort of just incidental you know quirky ways of dress or you know he describes how you would sort of assert your individuality in this you know but funny posters or something but fundamentally they were uh, a hard working and bourgeois <laughs> but that's not what they wrote about that if they were that's not what they made films about that's not what television became about it was denigrating institutions and making fun of people who uh, you know didn't have their good taste if i were a defensive bobo i would try and draw some distinction between uh the cultural elite and the actual cultural tastemakers. I'd say we are just socially liberal lawyers and doctors who live our lives the way we want to, but we're not going to pass judgment on the so-called underclass or uh, flyover country, as, uh, to use a, a term that's popular now. But, but we really have nothing to do with what goes on in Hollywood and cultural tastemaking uh, that might preach to other Americans uh, what they ought to do and believe uh, and set expectations. Is there something to that? Is there a difference between the Bobos and the, the tastemakers? There are many different groups of people doing different things, but what happens is they'll say, well, I, I'm, I have no part of that. But where the bourgeois, the Bobo, uh, bohemian parent comes in is with their children. They're very, very attentive to what their kind of school their child goes to. The same time they're in favor of and pretend to be in favor, you know, of uh, advancing everyone through education and so forth. Where were where were the efforts to preserve integrity of public schools? And again, the left and the right bear responsibility. The, the right not, not maybe not wanting to pay for it, and the left. Allowing the curriculum to become um, degraded and and just too many kids t- changing rules and and allowing um, just a, a lot of mediocrity that they would never have permitted in the schools their children went to. Increasingly, you see kids going to private school. Like, I, I grew up in Los Angeles and went to a public school in Westwood near near UCLA. Everybody went to the public school. I mean, movie stars' kids went to the. There were there was a few private schools. Mainly, they were for problem children. You didn't know. You, 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 you it wasn't the norm. And now, I, I'd like to see how that you know, the public schools were abandoned. So the word bobo sounds so much like bonobos, as we were joking before we started know, recording. Know, that it's thinking. it's tempting to talk about an evolution in a way that's uh, it's almost crass, but. We're going to get to that after we take our listeners to David Brooks' 2000 lecture, How the New Elite is Changing American Culture. Christina and I will be right back. Enjoy the lecture. There are, of course, two places in American culture where you can really get the temperature of the new elite, the people who are really shaping society, one being the dining room uh, of AEI, but the other being the New York Times wedding page, which I begin uh, the book with a description of, because in many ways it's a perfect encapsulation of upper-class, upscale America. I went back and read the New York Times wedding pages of the 1950s, where there the page really did exude the Protestant establishment, the world of John J. McCloy, uh, the Philadelphia story. Uh, They rarely list the jobs of the people getting married in those days. Instead, it mentioned their connections. So, for example, the men, it would list their prep school connections, what clubs they belonged to, what union league membership, metropolitan club. For the women, their debutante history, what cotillion ball they came out, the junior league uh, they belonged to. Uh, And ancestry was greatly important to the New York Times wedding page in the 1950s. And I'm going to read you a sentence that was drawn from a, a wedding announcement in 1958. She is descended from Richard Warren, who came to Brookhaven in 1664, 
Her husband, a descendant of Dr. Benjamin Treadwell, who settled in Old Westbury in 1767, is an alumnus of Gunnery School and a senior at Colgate University. So these were the sorts of things, 1958, not so terribly long ago, and yet you can't imagine that sentence appearing today. Today the page is very different, and I'm sure anybody who looks at the page on any given Sunday sees it. Uh, its devotees call it the mergers and acquisitions page. It's, it's a great clash of resumes, uh, the two resume gods coming together. It's Harvard marries Princeton, Fulbright marries Rhodes, Skadden Arps marries Solomon Brothers, uh, Magna Cum Laude marries Magna Cum Laude. You never actually see a Magna Cum Laude marrying a Summa Cum Laude because the tensions in such a <laughs> wedding would be too great. Uh, they are free spirits. They're always described as sort of berserk, uh, wild spirits, original. Uh, the wacky wrinkle in the wedding ceremony will always be loved over. So somebody will have hired the band Devo uh, to play the Jeopardy theme song as they walk up the aisle. Uh, the bridesmaids will have gone and gotten drunk in a Russian bath. Uh, the groom will have carried a snowboard with his favorite Schiller quotation uh, up to the, the altar with him. And then there'll be a history of the relationship in this vows column. Uh, these people always seem to have met while recovering from marathons, uh, or, or else uh, on a dig in Kenya for Pleistocene man remains. And then they took a series of joint vacations together, always to highly educational places like Myanmar and Minsk. Uh, and then they broke up because each of them felt a need for more space. Uh, and one of them went on during their breakup to arrange the largest merger in Wall Street history, and the other settled for a career in neurosurgery after dropping out of sommelier school. Uh, but then they got back together, usually in a summer house, uh, with people with cheekbones similar to their own, and they decided to get back together and share an apartment. Now, we don't know what their sex lives are like because the Times doesn't yet have a fornication page. <laughs> but it, it, it will, and it'll say Jane Smith... Uh, Harvard, 67, Yale, LD, 73, is now sleeping around with John Doe, you know, Amherst, 47, you know. Uh, and then they get married. Uh, they, they, the proposal is always, the man always tends to do the proposing, interestingly enough, uh, but it's always a subadventurous way at the top of Mount Rainier, or uh, the bride-to-be opens up her uh, diving mask in the Seychelles, and there's a diamond ring in it or something. Uh, and so what we have, looking at the page every given Sunday, is an elite that's based on education and not bloodlines. Uh, you've got your vineyard touring doctors, your novel writing lawyers, your tenured gardening buffs, and your literary realtors. And these form uh, a new establishment. So I spent, thanks in part to the standard, uh, thanks to my own research, I spent the better part of the last few years doing a lot of reporting from in these places, uh, in Aspen, Marin County, uh, East Hampton, because that's the sort of journalist I am. Uh, if, if there's a story there, I don't care what it takes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, report about it. Uh, and their most striking category, char characteristic, it seemed to me, after a while, uh, was that the old categories that divided American life no longer made sense among this upscale community. That it used to be relatively easy to tell someone who's a bourgeois from someone who's a bohemian. Uh, the bourgeois were the square practical ones, and I apologize in advance, it's pronounced bourgeois with the R sound, but I don't say it that way. Uh, uh, they were the ones who lived in suburbs, went to church, worked in corporations, and the bourgeois virtues are the shopkeeper virtues, the ones explicated by Benjamin Franklin, and the useful prosaic virtues, uh, self-discipline, frugality, order, punctuality, moderation, industry, temperance, fidelity, and faith. Now, they've always been opposed uh, by the bohemians, who loathed the bourgeois uh, and thought them soul-destroying and tepid. And a sub-theme of my uh, talk today is going to be constant references to the Crystal family. Uh, I work for one of them, so that's not stupid. But I was at a, uh, I was at a, a lunch here sponsored by Christine Hoff Summers, and I mentioned, was talking about this, uh, and uh, Irving mentioned a book I hadn't come across called Bourgeois versus Bohemian uh, by Cesar Grania, who I think is Spanish, if I'm not correct. Peruvian, there, there you go. Uh, and he had this great description of the cultural war in the 1830s or 1820s in Paris, where the Bohemians really rose up. Now the middle classes had really uh, displaced the aristocracy as the moving group in society. And he describes, say, Flaubert, uh, who looked at the stupid grocers in their ilk and found them plodding and avaricious. Flaubert signed his letters, bourgeois 
to show how much he loathed uh, these people. Stendhal said, hatred of the bourgeoisie is the beginning of all virtues, and they make him want to weep and vomit at the same time. And so shocking the bourgeoisie became their mode, as it would for people in this tradition for the next 150 years. Uh, they wore the long hair, they had the free sex, they engaged in mysticism, talk of suicide, altered consciousness, uh, romanticizing uh, peasant groups, uh, the sort of pranksterish humor that it was familiar to me as a kid from the hippies. Uh, one of the poets of the age walked through the gardens with a lobster on a leash, and he said, it does not bark, but it knows the mysteries of the deep, which is just the sort of humor the hippies would have gone in for. So the bourgeois were materialists and the bohemians were anti-materialists. The bourgeois were polite, the bohemians were raw, the bourgeois were career-oriented, so the, the bohemians were experience-oriented. The bourgeois pretended to be chaste and the bohemians pretended to be promiscuous. Uh, in the 1960s, the bohemian movement, as many people in this room have written, became a mass movement uh, with the hippies and Woodstock and the whole counterculture. And it was an assault on bourgeois values, not only about the war and civil rights and everything else, but it was an attack on that. Uh, Theodore Rozak wrote quite a good book about it, The Making of the Counterculture, and he, here's how he summarized the counterculture assault on the bourgeois. The bourgeoisie is obsessed by greed. Its sex life is insipid and prudish. Its family patterns are debased. Its slavish conformities of dress and grooming are degrading. Its mercenary routinization of life is intolerable. So it was a broad critique. It wasn't just niggling <laughs> around the corner. Uh, and then something happened uh, in the 1980s. Usually the bourgeois just ignored the bohemians. Uh, they followed the advice on their throw pillows that living well is the best revenge. Uh, and there were all these artists and novelists out there complaining about them, the babbitry. But they didn't seem to mind. They were, you know, golf was fine. The drinks were fine. Uh, but by the 60s, it became uh, such a mass phenomenon, such a frontal assault on bourgeois values that even the bourgeoisie, slow to rile, were finally riled, or at least people speaking uh, in part in their name. And my second reference to Irving Kristol was an essay he wrote in the 70s or 80s, I think, where uh, he wrote uh, he wrote really a defense, one of the important defenses of bourgeois uh, virtues, and it started out with a concession. Uh, and here's what Irving wrote. Bourgeois society is the most prosaic of all possible societies. It is a society organized for the comfort of common men and common women. So that's words like prosaic and comfort. So it's not inspiring the way aristocratic virtues are or the way religious or military virtues are, but it's decent. It's a good moral context for capitalism. Uh, it encourages self-discipline and hard work, uh, wholesomeness, respect for authorities. And bourgeois eras, uh, unlike bohemian eras, do actually lead to a fair bit of family stability, uh, low crime, orderly neighborhoods. Uh, whereas bohemianism, as many people in this room have written, can turn into a self-indulgent nihilism and really destructive of order. So there was something of a bourgeois revival intellectually, uh, many conservative writers mostly, uh, but also on Wall Street, when I was then working for the Wall Street Journal, uh, the yuppies emerged, who were sort of bourgeois on steroids. Uh, they went around in yellow ties. I had a friend come over from Russia and said, what club is the yellow tie club? because they couldn't understand, and now nobody wears yellow ties all of a sudden. Uh, they had the ridiculous suspenders, uh, the moose hair. Do you remember there was a phrase, moose abuse, uh, in the 80s? Uh, and so we had the yuppies and the hippies, and it was sort of a debate. Uh, if you were a bourgeois, you probably liked the Reagan 80s and loathed the 1960s. If you were a bohemian, you loved the 60s and hated the 80s. You could walk from Wall Street up to uh, Soho, and there'd be people with die yuppie scum t-shirts. Uh, I'm still waiting for the die Yahoo scum for the anti-internet sentiment, but that's not quite risen. Uh, and it was pretty, pretty easy to tell which side you were on, whether you were for guns or granola, Falwell or feminism, uh, beads or a buzz cut. Uh, and this was a very effective political tool for the Republicans in particular. Uh, George Bush, who wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't have thought of as a great culture warrior, but uh, he learned the language and how effective it could be. And my friends at the Standard who worked on the Bush campaign talk about, I forget how many days in a row he went to a flag factory, uh, but he went to a lot of flag factories against Dukakis, talked about the Pledge of Allegiance, and the subtext of that was, this guy's one of those countercultural lefties from the Northeast, uh, we don't really trust him. Uh, and Arthur Finkelstein did a series of ad campaigns, uh, what, whatever his Democratic opponent would be, so-and-so is a liberal, dangerously liberal, scarily liberal, and it wasn't so much, some of that was policy, he's going to raise your taxes, but some of it, he's one of these McGovernites, he's one of these cultural guys, and you know what they're like. But if you look around today, those old categories are blurred. For this trip, I went to some left-wing towns like Berkeley or Burlington, Vermont. 
I went to some right-wing places where I went to high school, a place called Wayne, Pennsylvania, on the main line outside of Philadelphia, to Orange County, and you found everywhere the same culture. You had the same arty coffee shops. Uh, my favorite one was in Wayne, which ranks number eight in the country in number of social registered family in this district, in this zip code. Well, there's a coffee shop there. Uh, five years ago, there were no coffee shops there. Now it's like coffee utopia. Uh, and the one is called Cafe Procopio, just across from the train station, the commuter train station. Uh, and Cafe Procopio, you know, there are always texts in all these places. And in the takeout cups of Procopio, it says, uh, Cafe Procopio is named after an 18th century Parisian left bank cafe where artists, rebels, and intellectuals would get together to discuss the issues of the day. Well, in Wayne, Pennsylvania, there are still not a lot of artists, rebels, and intellectuals. <laughs> but there are people who want to drink coffee like one and who have adopted the manners uh, of one. So in Wayne and in many and in these left-wing towns or right-wing towns, there's the gourmet bread stores. Uh, in Wayne, it's called the Great Harvest Bread Company, which is a Montana chain, uh, which is here. And it, I made the mistake the first time I went in there of asking them to slice the bread in the store. And they look at you like you haven't risen to higher bread consciousness, like you're... <laughs> like you're killing this bread. Uh, and there are distressed furniture stores in Wayne. There are now four of them. Uh, you know, and uh, the, it's so distressed, it looks like it's decomposing. It's just this furniture that's been stripped uh, bare. And I sometimes wonder, what do the Asian workers who build this stuff think? They have this nice new furniture come off the assembly line. And then there's one final step where they're scraping it up and beating it. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what they think of us. Uh, and then in Wayne, uh, as... As uh, in here and where I live in uh, Washington, there's a Fresh Fields, uh, which, you know, you walk through, you've got your vegetarian dog biscuits, your basmati rice, and your all-natural hair colorings. Because if you're going to artificially color your hair, you want the all-natural <laughs> ingredients. Uh, and they, uh, they've taken all the things that were from the 60s of interest to teenagers, like free love and nudity, and got rid of them and kept all the things that are of interest to middle-aged hypochondriacs, like whole grains, uh, and fancy rice. And then you go uh, to the left-wing places that were formerly anti-commercial. And I just actually ran into a sociologist in Boston who was a big 60s radical and hated commercialism and consumerism and read Veblen and all the right books about it. Uh, and he described to me his kitchen, uh, triggered by my book. And of course, his kitchen is the, the kind I describe in loving and envious detail in my book, which is the size of an aircraft hangar with plumbing, uh, with, you know, a one of these six-burner dual-fuel stoves, 20,000 BTUs that sends up heat, like a you know space shuttle rocket, uh, the Viking, and Aga. There are apparently in England entire books called Aga Sagas about these stoves. Uh, and the, the big uh, sub-zero refrigerator, sub-zero is actually in Madison, Wisconsin, very appropriately. Uh, I toured their assembly line. Uh, you know, there are two big doors. One of them is big enough for an in-law suite, and the other has uh, just got the freezer stuff. And in the book, I go, I go a little deeper, at least, than the consumption, but into intellectual life, religion, business life, pleasure, work, success. And what you find, I argue, bourgeois and bohemian values intermingled in all of them, uh, down to the way politics is practiced. And I concluded, or at least theorized, that this is a cultural consequence of the information age, that the age has, has uh, the keystone of the age is that ideas and creativity are as important as finance, capital, and natural resources to producing wealth. And therefore, the people who really succeed in this world are people who can take ideas and emotions and turn them into products. And so they have one foot in the world of creativity, uh, which is the world of bohemia, and one foot in the world of the marketplace. And they are designing web pages or magazines or advertising campaigns or what have you. But they have university-based ethoses, uh, and they are now selling stuff and getting rich uh, off of that. And so that Marx was wrong. He taught us that classes always conflict, uh, or usually. Uh, but in these two cases, at least in this culture war, the classes have just blurred. Uh, and that this new elite has replaced the old one, these people on the New York Times wedding pages. And they're doing what establishments always do, uh, which is setting rules for what's prestigious and what's not, determining debate, uh, setting a new pecking order, uh, and sort of shaping the cultural tone of the country. Back in studio with AEI resident scholar and factual feminist Christina Hoff Summers. So, Christina, I want to talk about the evolution of the Bobos and who they are today, who their children are today, especially because so much of how these Bobos are defined uh, regards what they pass along to their, their children, what values they, they model for them. Uh, and, and you mentioned that instead of 
flaunting luxury goods today that this class of new elites flaunts luxury beliefs. What do you mean by that? What do you see among among these elites today? Well, in terms of, in terms of consumerism, like Dave, David Brooks in two thousand you know, was talking about, you know, designer kitchens and, um, you know, sort of expensive sportswear and all sorts of things that marked you as a, a member of the chosen. And today, all that is there, but it's very there's so many knockoffs because again, everybody wants them, and and with good marketing, people have always wanted to be like. They're betters, and so you will you'll find this imitation. But by now, that's not the way you primarily indicate your social status. An indicator is your uh, sort of a set of beliefs about around privilege. And if you're if you're the more elite the college you go to, the more likely you do, you will have learned about systems of oppression and 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 the structures of race, class, and this sort of intersectional analysis. And, of course, you're at the top of it. No matter what your race <laughs> or class, you've gone to the top because you're at... Well, in reality, you have. In reality, you right. have. But in theory... No, in theory, uh, unless you're a white male, you know, if you're white male, able-bodied, and you know, neurotypical, um, and, and uh, you identify with your the gender, your sex you were born with... Um, unless you're that, you are. You can find some place for yourself where you can garner. And this, there's a kind of a, an economy of prestige and who's the oppressed and who's the oppressor. Mostly, though, uh, these students, there's a kind of um, just this new sort of conspicuous victimology and despairing over your privilege, feeling so bad that uh, you have these these unearned benefits from the society, not really doing anything about it. But maybe maybe tweeting about it or maybe writing about it or kvetching about it, but um, it's not clear that where this leads. I mean, if you, if you look at some of the political activism, um, I don't know, from Occupy Wall Street or more, you know, more recently the Women's March, it was just kind of amorphous performance. Um, there doesn't seem to be follow through. So, but now you can tell an elite the more they're talking the language of uh, critical theory. Why would you consider this a luxury belief rather than just a, a signal of virtue that transcends social class? Is there something particular about the upper crust that makes them more likely to hold these beliefs? This is where the, these views have flourished. Like my a stepson, Tamler, teaches philosophy at the University of Houston. And we have this ongoing battle where he denies that political correctness and woke politics are that much of a problem, and students aren't really like that. Well, he's at the University of Houston, they're not. He has a lot of kids, they're first generation, going to college, they don't, and they have jobs that they don't have time. But, you know, if you are a Wesleyan or Oberlin, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, all of them, um, there's a new sort of catechism of uh, intersectional critical analysis where you um, learn to see the world that way. And, but now it's moved into – so they've, it's been going on for a while. And now there – it used to be that people worked in newspapers, came up you – know, you didn't go to college to be a journalist. You became a – you know, a lot of people would just be uh, – they didn't call themselves journalists. I mean, they were just – newspaper men and women, but now they reporters, but now they're journalists. They go to the elite schools. They go to the New York Times. They'll go to the L.A. Times. Um, it used to be that our political party, the Democratic Party, got its, you know, it was connected to the labor movement, and a lot of its ideas came from labor. Now they come from the universities. So these ideas now are in every single Democratic candidate has to speak this language. It's New York Times, at the height of politics, you certainly have it in Hollywood. You have it in publishing. and it's, But it all came, I think, it moved through the universities. So this is right now very salient. Now maybe, I hope, someone does a podcast 20 years from now on, you know, this podcast on the one from 20 years ago, <laughs> this will all have passed, or maybe, maybe there's something worse ahead. But right now, I do think we've just, it's a sort of performative wokeness, which um, symbol shows that you are 
probably a member, you know, of the uh, cognitive elite. I'm sure history will smile upon this podcast. That, of that, I have no <laughs> doubt. But there, there are a couple of things that you mentioned that I think pushed up against each other really show a very stark disconnect between being privileged in reality by being a student at an elite university, having an elite job, having an elite, uh, having a set of elite opinions, uh, which is that today you signal your elitism by declaring that it wasn't really deserved, right? declaring that it was really on the backs of people less privileged than yourself that you earned your station in life, or you didn't really earn it, you just received it. Uh, and you you probably ought to be contrite uh, and uh, maybe maybe level off some of those different maybe not maybe just talk about leveling off those differences uh, by taking other people's well you know, the thing I don't see any any action you would think for example that Harvard and the, the, in, in Yale why don't they stop with the legacies you know to, that's right one I think it was it was a Johns Hopkins <laughs> that just yes. uh, just ended there. Like, yeah. I mean, that's the obvious step, right? I, the, I, I actually am very much in favor of that because it's so important now for an ambitious young person to go to get into one of these schools, and yet they still have the system of preferment just based on family. And uh, this this seems to be a fair system. And certainly, you would think that these guilty people at at Harvard and Yale and so forth. Um, would welcome this, but they don't, and I don't think it's going to happen. I, I do want to zoom in, though, on the distinction between today's uh, cognoscenti yeah. decrying their own privilege and really showing their privilege by struggling and grappling with it, uh, performatively, as you say, and the Bobos of 20, 25 years ago, whose entire culture was shaped around the notion that they were self-made that they earned their place in society. And frankly, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I do think that someone who worked hard and earned a lot of money should retain that and find, be proud of that if, if you want and have whatever strange cultural tastes you want. Do we have just critical theory to blame for for what has transpired over the last 20 years? Do we, when did we lose this idea of merit and desert? Uh, well, another, as I was saying earlier, something else was going on. Is that at that time, there was it. It did appear that it wasn't simply that we had this meritocracy, and more and more people were finding their way to college. There was an explosion of the number of you know young people that went to college. All that was happening, so it looked like everybody was improving, but that stopped, and. Too many of us, I include myself in this, I mean, just weren't attentive to what was happening in other parts of the country. And, you know, we were celebrating free trade and globalism and cosmopolitanism and not acknowledging the price that was paid for people who were not benefiting. Meanwhile, it was the fashion, it has continued to be the fashion, to be uh, tearing down traditional religion and family, even though... You might have a traditional family. And um, uh, other institutions that gave structure, dignity, and power to the working class. And that that would have been labor unions. That would have been churches, sources of power. Um, It used to be the political parties. um, And that eroded on our watch. And so uh, I think that all accelerated through the, the Clinton administration maybe before the Bush one, you just saw this transformation. I think, actually, Michael Lind has a very interesting book that just came out. And also Yuval Levin at AEI um, about what happened to the fundamental institutions of the society. And there was a time where the elites were sort of expected to be protective of, you know, not only protective, but to serve in the military and to... That doesn't happen now. I mean, that's strictly... Not strictly, but, you know, it's primarily a working, a working class, class, lower class, class, lower class. Yeah. Sure. And so there's just greater distance between the Bobos or the, you know, people in the latte towns, to use another expression of Brooks, um, and m- middle America. 
at surface level, we seem to be talking about a, a group that was left behind that might be appealed to with certain populist rhetoric or sentiments uh, that I would probably characterize, you know, it's reductionist, but I'll do it as right-wing populists. But the change that we've seen among the cultural elite almost seems like a response to a left-wing populist backlash, the same Occupy Wall Street Mm -hmm. uh, tendencies and ideas. Do you see those two political phenomena as two sides of the same cultural coin? Or are they just two coincidental phenomena that just, you know, because of income inequality, which affects people of all cultures equally? Uh, Well, maybe not all cultures, but... uh, that that those two ascendant populisms would spring up at the same time does that make sense oh no i think it it's uh, we see it happen we saw what happened is that you what you have on both the right and the left and i think yuvala bin describes this beautifully is that the the parties rather than representing constituents and and doing the job that you're supposed to do if you're a member of the United States Congress and sort of cooperating. It's now become um, an occasion for performance and for individual expression. We see this right now very much on the left with the, um, the squad, but I think we saw it before with the Tea Party coming in and, and just wanting to break things up and Speak your mind and and have your own thing going. It was all about you and your your little group. And again, it's it, there's a disconnect from the society at large. There's an inability to cooperate and also a tendency to demonize. So we're getting this this polarization, this anger. Although I think that there's more. I, I see more anger on the left. Boy, leftists can can really they really hate conservatives, and conservatives typically think that leftists are misguided, and they think conservatives are evil, so they act out in all sorts of ways. And here we are. Well, clearly, these cultural trends are not purely academic. They they really do flow pretty neatly and quickly into political phenomena. And uh, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show and and helping us see a little more clearly how that functions and uh, helping elaborate on uh, on David Brooks's lecture. So with that, I want to say thank you, Christina, for joining us. Uh, This is really terrific. And to our listeners, enjoy the rest of David Brooks, How the New Elite is Changing American Culture. Uh, And yet now, if you go to places like Wayne, as I described, these distressed furniture stores, you've got people who are spending millions of dollars to show how unmaterialistic they are. Uh, And one of the ways they do this is taking advantage of an Aristotelian distinction between needs and wants, that it's okay to spend lavishly on needs so so long as you don't spend any money on wants. So, for example, a luxury like a media center is considered vulgar, but spending $20,000 on your slate shower stall Uh, is a sign that you're at one with the zen-like rhythms of nature. Uh, Spending money on caviar is vulgar and sort of old-fashioned rich, but now people have become cognoscentes of the lettuce world, and they've got these uh, bad-tasting lettuces from northern Italy uh, that they can discourse on at great length. Uh, Spending money on a Corvette would be vulgar, but a practical Range Rover uh, is something that seems virtuous because, you know, you can actually haul stuff in a Range Rover. Uh, I actually once thought of writing a screenplay called rebel without a Camry about an English professor who bought a Cadillac and all the social opprobrium that would fall upon him. Uh, One of the fascinating things about the transition of this bourgeois world, and especially in places like Wayne or Orange County, is the way they've adopted the Bohemian Manor so thoroughly. There's a great book called The Refinement of America by a Columbia historian named Bushman, Richard Bushman or Philip Bushman, uh, Richard Bushman, and he describes the transition, what, the genti- what, the, what gentility did to American furnishings in the early part of the 19th century, late, or the, even the early part of the, uh, the 18th century, which is they took everything that was rough and they made it smooth. So people uh, at the time had broad floor blanks, so they made them narrow and genteel. They had big stone fireplaces. They made them small and delicate. They had rough-hewn beams in the ceiling, and the people who were creating this refined American ethos made them uh, covered over the ceilings. 
and they created parlors, which was the center of refinement in the home. You go into a bourgeois house today that's just being developed, uh, and I just, I'm doing a story on these $10 million track mansions in California. They've taken everything the genteel uh, people did 200 years ago, and they've reversed it. So now broad, thick floor planks are in fashion, and people literally have pe workers come in it with ball-peen hammers and hammer dents into them to give it that authenticity. And big stone fireplaces are in fashion. Rough-hewn beams are the ceiling, brick faces. Everything is textured and rough. It's the exact opposite of the way the bourgeois, who are trying to be, refine themselves above the working class, now you're trying to refine yourself spiritually above the money class and spending great gobs of money in doing it. Uh, the other thing I noticed, well, the other great sweep of bohemianism is into the, the business world, which was the other epicenter of bourgeois activity. In the 1950s, you go back to the business magazines, and the, the businessmen, men mostly in those days, were dressed in white shirts, of uh, dark paneling, and they just wanted to be seen as boring and not interesting. The, the phrase fiduciary responsibility sort of wafts up above them. But now if you look at the business magazines, every businessman, like Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, wants to be pictured with his wacky accoutrement. He'll have a super soaker water cannon, uh, or he'll have uh, maybe a collection of ashtrays. Uh, he'll be dressed like an aging rock star. There was a, uh, a fellow from uh, Microsoft, Mirvold, who I think was number two at Microsoft, was on the cover of Fortune with a beanie propeller hat on his head, which can you imagine a businessman in the 1950s posing that way on the cover of Fortune? Uh, in fact, the business world is the last place in America where this, the age of Aquarius liberated rhetoric is still going at full bore. Uh, Apple Computer uses the slogan, the crazy one, the misfits, the rebels. Lucent Technologies uses born to be wild. Uh, Burger King, which you don't think of as you know, the great countercultural uh, institution, uh, their slogan is sometimes you've got to break the rules. And it goes into the management philosophy as well. Tom Peters, one of the best-selling management consultants, talks about think revolution, not evolution. Destruction is cool. Uh, and this is what you hear if you listen to those headphones on the plane, the management channel, uh, over and over again. And if you visit the companies, first of all, among the young people who are in their 20s, uh, they look exactly like the people I saw getting arrested out here uh, during the IMF World Bank meeting. They have the red hair, uh, they have the tattooed noses, and they have the same attitudes and language as the people getting out arrested out here, which made me think those people getting arrested are going to be working at uh, Microsoft in about 10 years or five or two. But secondly, they talk like they're younger than they are, even the 50-year-olds. If you ask them, how'd the IPO go? Oh, it cratered, uh, like a 16-year-old. Uh, how's the product pipeline? It's insanely great. Uh, they talk as if somehow it's cooler to be young and part of the youth culture than it is to be part of the mature culture which again is something, you know, countercultural infecting uh, the world. And the, the, the countercultural critique of bureaucracy and technocracy, which was so much in the air in the 60s, has now been adopted wholesale uh, in management theory. So they would talk about rigid bureaucratic hierarchies, reducing people to cogs in a machine. Uh, and now that's utterly standard uh, in corporate America. The idea is to develop teams where people can have loose personalistic relationships, exactly the sort of thing uh, that many people were talking about in the 1960s. So if you look at consumer taste and the business language, you think the Bohemians have taken over, taken over America because their values have swept across at least the surface of commercial and business life. Uh, so I ask in the book, well, who won the culture war? And I talk about this in the standard uh, in the last issue. And you can drive yourself crazy talking about that because it is a synthesis, a blurring, and that there are bourgeois and bohemian mixed up in, in many people and many of us. Uh, and conservatives have tended to look on the dark side, thinking that the bourgeois, the great ally of conservatives, uh, lost the culture war. But in fact, uh, well, for example, George Gilder argued, here's a quote from him, Bohemian values have come to prevail over bourgeois virtues in sexual mores and family roles, arts and letters, bureaucracies and universities. As a result, culture and family life are widely in chaos. Cities seethe with venereal plagues. Schools and colleges fall to obscu obscurantism and propaganda, and the courts are a carnival of pedophagory. So that was an argument written in commentary about five years ago, that the Bohemians have just swept it all, and the bourgeois virtues, which are the mainstay of America, have been swept away. But can, could America really be as productive today uh, as it is if that were so? Uh, I think probably not. And I think I argue a bit in the book 
that at the core, the bourgeois actually won the culture war because the core of the bohemian complaint was that commercial life, that business life was soul-destroying. Uh, and now the people who are most vociferous about how soul-destroying it is think it's fantastic. So long as you can go to work in, uh, you know, blue jeans and hiking boots and glacier glasses, uh, you know, as if a, a giant wall of ice was about to come down the parking lot in the middle of lunch hour. So you need all this high-tech parka equipment. Uh, and now they have embraced, in places like Berkeley and Burlington, Vermont, they've embraced worldly ambitions. They've accepted the wisdom and judgments of the marketplace of who succeeds and who doesn't. Uh, Business has unprecedented prestige today. I think there are fewer mortal enemies of capitalism today uh, than there have been at any time in the past hundred years. You look at magazines like Wired Magazine, Red Herring, uh, or Fast Company, uh, and they, you know, they have the, culture, the countercultural patina. They're all, you know, they have the orange and the bright greens as if they're a Jefferson Airship uh, poster. But in fact, they are business magazines, and they celebrate the virtues of business, which are the virtues of hard work and productivity. Uh, and so I argue in the book that Daniel Bell wrote in The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism that the, the ethos of modernism with its emphasis on immediate gratification, immediate pleasure, he argued that would undermine the, the productive ethos uh, of American capitalism. But in reality, it seems the exact opposite has happened, that you find people who, when they conceive of themselves as artists and rebels, when they think of their work as part of their self-expression rather than just uh, their uh, job, They'll work 20 hours a week. You know, they've got the sleeping bag under the desk, uh, which you see in the, in the high-tech firms. And they'll, they'll devote great energies to working incredibly hard. And once you accept the bourgeois values, all sorts of other things come into play. Uh, for example, you accept the idea that society should be ordered and calm. Uh, the Bohemians were all about throwing off the fetters of society, emancipating themselves, and going into a realm of pure freedom. But now if you look around... Uh, American culture and American discussion, there's very little calls for that. If you looked in, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, there were people really calling for nonconformity, rebellion, extreme individualism. But now I just got in the mail uh, a book by Robert Putnam, uh, Bowling Alone, based on his famous essay. Now, I have trouble imagining a 1960s radical or many people in the 1960s holding up bowling leagues as a symbol of healthy community. I mean, bowling leagues would have seemed like bourgeois and boring, you know, just the height of reactionary, dumb culture. But now they seem sort of calm, and Amitaya Tioni's in the room. So uh, an example of, of the emphasis on community, on social co cohesion, on civil society, uh, which is now, I think, the dominant uh, mode of uh, the way people talk on both right and left. It comes in right and left-wing versions now. Uh, meanwhile, universities are cracking down. They're reestablishing their in loco parentis authorities on the students with rules on drinking, cohabitation, fraternity hazing, sexual contact most famously. Legislatures seem to want to control everything, control on guns, internet porn, tobacco, campaign spending, violent television, uh, anything that might upset parents. Uh, in 1970s, the Summerhill approach by A.S. Neal, a British educationalist, was quite popular. He was a guy who created a school in England which had no, no rules except for those the students created themselves. And the idea was the romantic idea that students would naturally, you know, educate themselves. And his book in the 1970s sold, sold two million copies in the U.S. alone. Uh, it's hard to imagine an idea quite as out of fashion, uh, at least among mainstream discourse. Who knows what's happening in the education schools? But uh, 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 that idea is out of fashion. If you looked at the response to the Columbine, the Columbine massacre, there were many different, you know, people used it for their own purposes. But on one issue, there seemed to be un unanimity, which is that parents need to, need to impose more authority on their kids. Uh, and that's sort of where the ethos is. You look at towns, there's stricter zoning control to clamp down, to make the towns more orderly against teardowns, against new kind of restaurants, against this, against that. You look at the, the consumption patterns and the vacation patterns of the people I describe. It's not utopian. It's not futuristic. It's, the word modern is never used except for in its old-fashioned sense. Modernist is now something we're nostalgic for. It's always looking back to the past. There are bumper stickers, save the, save the, save the theater, save the bay. Very into preservation. I get Preservation Magazine, something I recommend to salivate over the real estate ads. Uh, and the preservation ethos is such a, a backward-looking ethos such an ethos that rejects the future, uh, rejects the idea of a new utopia, but, uh, but is based on the idea that we're, there was some wisdom that the past possessed uh, that we have lost. 
And in fact, uh, restoration hardware, it's not too much in the book, but I did a story on restoration hardware. And that is the explanation they use for their, for their store, which is that people feel they've left something behind with their mobility, and they want to look back longingly at that, and they want to surround them stuff with, the, with whatever, surround themselves with stuff that the people who had the wisdom had, and maybe the wisdom will come later. And then you look at political life, and it, what you see is small-scale politics in Washington today. Uh, you know, people pull back from Hillary Clinton's ambitious effort to expand public health care. Uh, people pull back from Newt Gingrich's ambitious effort to, uh, you know, radically reduce the size of government. Many thought when the boomers came into, came into political power when they were in their 50s, they'd bring their youthful ideological style with them. In fact, the exact opposite has happened. They brought an anti-ideological style. Uh, one of the interesting things that were, was of interest to some of my colleagues at the Standard who wrote State of the Union addresses was the way Clinton totally revolutionized State of the Union addresses, that they no longer had any theme, they no longer had an ideological content. They were just a series of modest proposals designed for that constituency, that constituency, just the laundry list which we've become familiar with. And that's politics exactly the way the bourgeois likes it. Anti-ideological, ideological mush really, but concrete, modest, not too grand, but somehow vaguely activist. Discussion in the conservative world over whether the cultural war still exists, it's sort of, I'll label it somewhat crudely, Himmelfarb versus Fukuyama. Uh, B. Crystal wrote a piece in, in uh, uh, the current issue of Commentary reminding us that it, you, know, you look at the South Carolina primary and religious conservatives who really are dissenters from mainstream culture still exist. Uh, Fukuyama writes in The Great Disrupt Disruption that the disruption is over and that it, the rift is healed. And I guess, uh, very nervously, I side more with Fukuyama. Uh, and I would say about South Carolina, even that is a sign the culture war is over. That what those people were responding to when they hated McCain, and they really did hate him, was less cultural politics and more identity politics. That when George W., when McCain attacked their leaders, it wasn't over abortion or even over a cultural matter. It was he was attacking one of us. Uh, and George W. Bush, when asked who his great favorite philosopher was, he didn't say, you know, somebody who actually is a conservative philosopher, he said Jesus Christ, which was a sign, I'm one of you. And it, I think he played that as uh, identity politics, rather as cultural politics, uh, that the culture has sort of evaporated and what's left is sort of the, ideal, the identity. And you'd think, uh, just to wrap up, that the, the conservatives would be riding, rising high. The conservatives have always been the great defenders of bourgeois politics. Uh, and the bourgeois style and the bourgeoisie. And it seemed for a while they would be. But over the past couple of years, it's become clear that conservatives were allied with the bourgeoisie, but were not the same as the bourgeoisie. And there have been a series of ruptures between the conservatives and middle Americans. The most famous was over the Clinton scandals. Conservatives were outraged by the Clinton scandals. The middle Americans said, well, the economy's going great. Uh, you know, why make a change? Which is a classic bourgeois attitude. You know, let's not get excited by abstractions, you know. Things were okay. Nothing's bothering me. Uh, there have been a whole series of issues like this, Elian Gonzalez being a recent one. Many conservatives in my magazine hyperventilating about Elian uh, getting sent back to a communist place, but the country didn't seem too aroused by it. Uh, and it becomes clear that conservatives have a set of ideals, whether you're a libertarian, an ideal about freedom, religious conservatives about why uh, the country should cohere with the, the God-made order, or if you're one of the three national greatness conservatives, uh, an idea that uh, there's a certain patriotic ideal of America that uh, the country should approximate. Uh, but uh, these people with ideas are always introducing abstractions which middle America is in no mood for, and certainly not the bobos I'm writing about. And so one is beginning to see on the right exactly what one saw on the left, which is attacks on middle America, attacks on the bourgeoisie. At the height of the Clinton scandals, Bill Bennett wrote a book called The Death of Outrage, why aren't people getting excited? Why are they so fat and happy? Why are they so concerned about the economy? Well, that's the problem with the bourgeoisie, and they never get excited. But that was the sort of thing Flaubert hated them for, too, because they just are sunk deep in their own fat, as he would have said it. Uh, so it was the, it's the Democratic Party under Clinton with his third-way, ideologically mushy style, which has actually become a more bourgeois party uh, than the conservative part of the Republican Party has become. And it's that third-way, ideological, mushy style which prevails across the Northern Hemisphere. It's a reconciliation between two things, you know, half countercultural. You know, the Clintons are a perfect example. They were marching in the 60s. They were selling futures in the 80s. Uh, and they put it all together. Uh, and that's the third way.
Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyond and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.